Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Someone's Daughter. Please give me back my name. No one knows who I am or how I came to die. Battered, beaten, and left naked on the rocky edge of Boulder Creek. I was found in April 1954 by two college students out on a hike. My murderer, whoever he was, was brutal, vicious. But the compassionate people of Boulder gave me a Christian funeral with graveside services right here where you are standing. The police think I was about 20 years old. (laughs) I was too young to die. Will this grave mark an unsolved mystery? Can someone tell me who I am and return my remains to my family? Yes, there is. And that person is Sylvia Pedham, author of the book Someone's Daughter and Search of Justice for Boulder's Jane Doe. Welcome, Sylvia. Well, thank you for having me. So, Sylvia, that narration uh, at the top by that young lady, uh, courtesy of a good friend of mine, Emily Partington, uh, was from um, an activity called uh, Meet the Spirits. Uh, Tell us about, uh, which sort of kicks off this whole uh, story, tell us about Meet the Spirits. Well, I was already part of a, a historic preservation community, and I was aware that there was going to be this event being put on in my local cemetery in Boulder, Colorado, where various people dressed up like characters buried in the cemetery. And at the time, I was researching a woman named Mary Ripon. She was the first woman professor at the University of Colorado. And so I portrayed her, and it was during that, uh, actually during the rehearsal of that event, that I came across uh, a young woman uh, portraying the teenager who went uh, was found in Boulder Canyon as Jane Doe and buried under a grave marked Jane Doe. Was written by this young woman who presented it, or was it written by someone else for her? It was sort of a joint project. I think perhaps I might even added to it myself, but it it was the the essence of what she was saying. She was just making a plea to have somebody help her find her name. And she was portraying this young unidentified victim. And she said, won't somebody please help me find my name and return my remains to my family? And I thought, well, I'll try. (laughs) <laughs> and and this is so you were inspired almost from that moment yes, to yeah. you know and this is now 1996 so we've got the internet starting and so we've right. got google and we've got ancestry so so right away you then started to to um so tell us a little bit about about the beginning how you well, sort it, of it obviously you had no it wasn't right away no um actually i wasn't even on the internet till 1998 so this was, I'm, I'm thinking back to that time. I, 
I, uh, I watched a, a TV show about somebody who had identified an unknown um, victim with DNA. And I think that was my introduction, was just seeing someone else doing the, doing this, what we ended up doing. But all this had, to, it took several years actually to gel in my head. It wasn't anything immediate. And I got talking with, with other people and the subject of DNA came up, but it was still in its infancy. And it wasn't until 2004, actually, that I went to my local sheriff and I, I didn't know anything at all at the time about uh, uh, investigations or homicides. I, I didn't even know how it worked, the investigation part. But I just went to my local sheriff and I said, well, why don't you just dig her up and I'll help you with the research and we'll figure out who she is. And he did. And, and we did find out. So um, it was a huge success story. But at the time, I was very naive about it all. And it, it didn't happen overnight. So let's so let's now um, at that uh, obviously in nineteen uh, uh, fifty four you know you were not even aware of it, um, but when you started uh, becoming interested interested in it, okay, you start with the fact there's a body, uh, someone was obviously murdered. Well, you knew it was a murder because the only thing that the young woman who was portraying Jane Doe had to to go on in order to talk to her audience. The only the only information she had were some newspaper clippings, and the newspaper clippings definitely said that the young woman had been murdered. So that that's really all we knew initially. And then the, so now let's sketch out what you have ultimately over the time uh, discovered just the facts, ma'am. What was the facts of what was known at the time? You know where she was found, what happened to her, how they judged how she was killed as best they could. You know autopsy, etc. So tell us a little bit about again not stuff that you uncovered, stuff you learned that then you went forward well, with. Some of it I uncovered. For instance, I uncovered the crime scene. We knew from the newspaper articles that she had been dumped from a road nine miles west of Boulder. And this is a very rugged mountainous area into the edge of a creek, 29 feet down an embankment. And it showed a, a picture in the newspaper of two college students who had discovered her body. And they were posed in front of a, a very distinctive rock. It had some big markings on it. And it just said that it was downstream from a certain um, tourist parking area, but it didn't say how far or any details or anything like that. So what I did initially was go to my local library and I researched the, the, the roadway. And I found out when that road, it was a very old road from the 1870s, but I found out when it had been um, refigured, reconfigured and graded and paved and all that. And I found out that it had not been, the roadway itself had not changed since 1954. It had been changed about in 52 or 53. So I went with my camera and went to the parking area that it said it was near and walked downstream and actually found that rock, that very same rock. Took the picture, a then and now picture, and then I took that to the sheriff and 
he actually drove up there with me afterwards and confirmed that, yes, this is the crime scene. So, I mean, to me, a novice at the time on doing this kind of investigation, that was really exciting to to have actually found where where her body had been found. Now, were you able to find ultimate? I mean, you know, jumping around maybe a little bit, but were you able to to interview either of the college land? I did interview one of the college students. He unfortunately was in a nursing home. He had, I think, Parkinson's. Uh, he's no longer alive now, but he, his long term memory was wonderful. I took him the newspaper articles and I went there with another family member of his and we all sat down together, put the articles on the table. And he said, I remember this like yesterday and essentially confirmed everything that was in the newspaper articles. Wow. I did and try to check the other student and uh, the other student didn't. Yeah, I, he, he just didn't want to be part of it. Now, uh, someone who figures uh, in, you know, in the uh, authority is um, Steve, uh, Detective Ainsworth. Uh, does he come in early or does he come in later? He he was in early when I initially this was in 2004. No, it was in, in the fall of 2003. I'm sorry. Um, I met with with Detective Ainsworth. I met with his superior, uh, Phil West. And I think there were a couple other people in the room as well. But um, that's when I came in and presented the newspaper articles and just said, I'll help you if you dig her up. Uh, so you had to go through uh, legal channel and challenges. Uh, well, yeah, Steve Ainsworth, as the detective, was the one that took care of of that the the law enforcement side of this. So yes, he needed to get a warrant, and he was the one who did it. He had to get a warrant from a judge, and you're you're correct in saying that a family member could could request an exhumation, or law enforcement can if if there's due cause. And and in this case, we managed to find the autopsy and uh, coroner records. And so, I mean, it was confirmed that it was a murder and there's no statute of limitations on murder. So uh, the de the detective had no trouble getting that warrant. Um, so, but in the book is you do describe uh, the, the exhumation. You were there and you, uh, you know, had a moment, if you will, with um, the deceased. So why don't you tell my audience a little bit about that? Well, during the exhumation, I I was feeling really honored to even be allowed to be there because I wasn't part of the, I, I wasn't part of the inner law enforcement circle, but they did allow me to be there, and um, it, it was a long two day process of removing a bone by bone essentially because her coffin had disintegrated underground. But yes, there was one point where I I just felt that I needed. I needed the physical connection with this girl and I reached down and touched her hair. That was just, there was like a tuft of hair in, in the open grave. And to me, that was my way of connecting with her. And so the point, um, I'm not sure again, if they did any um, extra um, forensics or that at that time, but what you were of course interested in was DNA. 
primarily that's i mean that's going to help going forward to at least identify her i don't know if if bringing her and maybe there's something in the book about it uh whether bringing her up like that and turn she was then the the remains were turned over to the coroner right for some more work now then they went to the forensic experts we we had the vidox society involved and they're a organization of world-class forensic people who they're based in philadelphia and i I feel very honored they they gave me a medal for this case and they and now I am a member. So I feel very close to these people. But the the remains were given, well not given, but turned over to one of the members of the Vidoc Society. He lived in he's no longer alive, but he lived in Arizona. And he actually rearticulated the entire skeleton. He reassembled it on a on a table. It took him six weeks. And the skull had been in more than a hundred pieces. It had been crushed just from the weight of the of the earth because the coffin had disintegrated. So he spent I don't know how much time reassembling this skull. So what what the forensic people did really was a, another autopsy, a postmortem autopsy, but you know, fifty years later autopsy. But they also found. Um, an injury that was not mentioned in the original autopsy, and that was a, a broken kneecap. So that that figures into the story later. But it was more than the DNA. It was the forensic people needed to examine the, re the remains and see if there was some, I mean, who knows, there could have been a bullet hole or something. And there wasn't. But I mean, they needed to, to re-examine uh, the remains as they were taken out. And now, again, they were taken bone by bone. So. When you mentioned the the reconstruction, um, was that done by Bender, or he did the the the, the clay skull? Frank uh, uh, Bender. I know he was involved. He was involved. He just did the 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 clay skull. Yes, uh, it was um, uh, Walter Berkby and Dick Freedy, the two members from uh, Arizona, who did the um, examining of the remains. And so again, but obviously at that point, you're standing in the background going, don't forget the DNA, please, please. <laughs> you know, a tooth, a please, just, uh, you know, I don't want to get involved. I don't want to get in your way, but you know, I need the DNA, right? Well, it, it didn't go to me anyway. So th they knew what they were doing. I just had to trust that the law enforcement and the forensic people knew what they were doing. And at that point, I didn't know enough about DNA to know if it came from a tooth or a bone. And I think they, they tried both. They so did, yeah. it was a, a huge learning experience for me. So then, of course, the DNA then gets, you know, I mean, entered into the system. But you're not just now sitting back. You're contacting, you've, you're out there in the network. Tell us some, a little bit about the network that's out there. Okay. Well, I, I need to go back a little bit because what the, the DNA that you're talking about is what we now call forensic genetic genealogy. And that was not something that we knew about back then. Uh, if we were doing this, this investigation that we did in 2004, if we were doing it today, we would use that forensic genealogy. But at the time, what we needed was just a DNA sample that in itself was meaningless. We couldn't go and find somebody in the family. We needed just to have it on hand in case we found uh, a family member of this unidentified victim, and then we could match it. 
So that actually came up in discussions even before the exhumation, like, well, why are we even getting this DNA? And, and the answer was just to have it on hand in case a family member comes forward or in case we can find a family member. But if we were, again, if we were doing that today, it would be an entirely type of d different uh, investigation because we would be branching out into all of these common ancestors way back with, you know, all these extended people and cousins and all that, that, that was not, so it, it wasn't that I wanted the DNA. It was, I wanted the exhumation so that the DNA would be available. My, my job was actually to go back and, and try to find as many missing young women in that era as possible. So it, it, again, it was a different approach than what would be taken today. And perhaps that would be used in coordination with a forensic genetic genealogy. But yeah, well, we had a number of, of leads that just went nowhere, but we had to follow them. And to, to backtrack a little bit, I want to say that we had a, uh, a volunteer webmaster come forward who created a really great website for us. And it had a message board, which was wonderful because it, it got out to this community of web sleuth type people and they were all uh, coordinating or communicating with each other. And we got the word out that we were looking for a missing young woman who was found in Boulder, Colorado in 1954. So um, we had people from all over the country contacting us. And I made up a, a great big spreadsheet. I mean, this was back in the old days. I didn't have Excel. It was on paper. It was a huge big thing of, you know, with about 40 names on it and um, followed up on every single one of them. And uh, the first one was a young woman that went missing in uh, Toronto in Canada. Her remains have still not been found. But um, we we did all the research that we could, contacted family members, got DNA from them, compared the DNA. And I'm saying we rather loosely because, again, this was a partnership. It was with the law enforcement and the forensic experts. And, and my part was kind of in the background doing the research. And this might be a good point to point out that um, I wasn't even thinking of writing a book at this point in the research. I was merely documenting our journey. It was a journey uh, and a partnership. And I just wanted to document the progress. And I'm really glad that I did because eventually it turned into a book and hopefully that has helped other people. So, um, but that was my, um, the writing of the book was not my original purpose, but to get back to the uh, other leads and tangents for the longest time, I thought that uh, Jane Doe was a, a young woman who ran away from Nebraska. Her name was Twyla. And I got very involved with her family. My husband and I made several trips. We're in Colorado, so it was you know like a one-day drive, but we drove to Nebraska, visited with the family, went to family cemeteries, talked with them, talked with a surviving sister. And um, it, it seemed very likely that uh, it was Twyla, but uh, eventually we figured out she had run away and changed her name and lived somewhere else. So uh, and these things happen. And uh, one of the things that I learned is that not everyone who goes missing is murdered or whatever. They're, they're, um, they choose to go missing. No, well, I, I like that. Or, or again, it's and it, it was interesting in the book 
that um, it was something I never thought of. Again, we're talking about in the 50s. I grew up in the 50s. So I was the Isaac and Harriet family, okay? And and to think my mom just getting up and go, she had five kids, bang, 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 bang. And it's like, no, I'm getting out of here. And they did, not just one. They did. So it's hard to find someone who does not want to be found. Right. So, and that was in the case, as you say, with uh, uh, Twyla. And then um, then there was Catherine. She was the third. That's the next one I want. Right. Catherine. Tell us about Catherine Catherine. uh, Farad Dyer. Catherine Farad. Yeah. And uh, I I was convinced at one point that Catherine Farad Dyer was our, our young lady. And uh, I found out that she had been married to a man named Jimmy Dyer, and then I traced his his wives, and he had four wives, and one of them lived in Denver, which was not too far from me. And so I went and visited uh, the former wife, and it turned out that uh, she had some old um, large format negatives of photographs that he had taken uh, of his wife, Catherine, back in, in the late 40s in, in New Mexico. And um, I called her up. It was another time I had visited with her and come home and called her up one day. And I said, you know, I'd really like to look at those slides. And she said, I just put them out for the trash man to pick up. I don't want them. But she said, if you come down this morning, I'll give them to you. <laughs> so I jumped in my car. It was a two-hour drive. And I got the I got the slides and I brought them home and I laid them out on a big light table. She said, well, they're just landscapes. And I said, well, I want to see them anyway. And I laid them out and most of them, yes, were landscapes. They were pictures of the Grand Canyon, but there was one and it was identified as Catherine. And um, she was wearing a big leather uh, 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 letter sweater. I'm sorry, a letter sweater. And um I actually made a trip to Flagstaff, um, Arizona, went to the special collections at the university there, got that very exact sweater, uh, measured it, uh, figured out her height based on the sweater. I mean, I, I went to great lengths trying to prove that this was uh, our Jane Doe and really thought that it was. But um, there was another twist and turn to come. But yeah, and and in the case of that, I believe that, um, and you do have some wonderful photos in the book, um, that the, and you can convince yourself of anything, if and we know that, but because I, this any sketch that anyone does of a crook, if they have a beard, it looks like me. <laughs> All right. If you know the times, I've had to go to the police station and say, it's not me. Or I don't know if you're into Breaking Bad or any of those things, but Brian oh, yeah. Cranston, everyone thinks I'm Brian Cranston. Okay. I'm not Brian. I love Brian, but I'm not him. So, but we have the wonderful bust by Frank Bender, uh, which is a gorgeous of just the, the head. Um, and it's not a sketch, which is so much better. It is, you know, three dimensional. You can believe when you look at Catherine in that picture uh, that of her up on a cliff or a mountain, you know, getting a landscape picture, a selfie. In those days, someone had to take the selfie. Um, you could say, yeah, that looks like her. Well, a lot of people have said that. I personally am not that fond of that sculpture. Um, I, I, I just wish that he had made her with a hairstyle that women in the 50s wore they all their hairstyles were sort of soft and curly and they have her looking like a a hippie that just came out of the creek you know just straight blonde hair 
Um, she also has no makeup on. She has, she looks very sad. Um, I wanted something to go out to the public. And, and this was made, this facial reconstruction sculpture, it was made to go out on the TV show America's Most Wanted to get to a national audience. And so I wanted something more upbeat and cheerful and something that a family would say, oh, that looks like so-and-so. But instead we have this sort of sad face with maybe a little bit coarser features. And um, I, I was not really all that pleased with it, but we did get it on the show. And there was a um, superimposition. This was again, another forensic uh, expert did this. But what they do is they um, super, superimpose the sculpture onto a TV screen and compare the features. And just about everything matched, her eyes, her nose, her mouth, her jaw bones. And when you take into consideration that the jaw had been reconstructed, reconstructed from more than 100 broken pieces of skull, I mean, there, there must be some error in there. But the, the match was so close that it wasn't the sculpture so much that made me think that it that Catherine was our Jane Doe, but it was the superimposition that was it was the forensics that made me think this this has got to be her. I mean, it's so close. And there could be a tiny little error there where somebody, you know, glued something slightly wrong. But what so, is what is interesting about that uh, is it's fascinating that that could have been done with the naked skull after it had been put together. So it wouldn't have had any of those other features that even in your mind may have clouded the identification. No hair, no facial expression, uh, just, again, eyes, nose, yeah. even reconstructed, you know, distance from ear, you know, ear positions. It all matched so well. Yeah, that's amazingly fascinating. So you thought you had it, um, uh, but um, unfortunately, you didn't. And so we're going to talk a little bit. We'll talk about that. Aha. But let's also talk about I think it might have been at the same time. There was a um, which I don't think had to do with the exhumation or the maybe the re uh, investigation, the case sort of focusing on a possible suspect that killed whoever Jane Doe was. Is that at this time or after the full identification? Oh, it was it was during the, the investigation. I think it was in 2006. We, we we hit kind of a little lull and we were going through. I, I'm saying we rather loosely because I was corresponding at the time with multiple other researchers who were of tremendous help. And we had kind of a, a hardcore group of five of us who just emailed each other all day. And so, I mean, not all day, but every day and um, communicated about, you know, did you check on that person or what did you find out about this or whatever? So, um, but we hit kind of a little plateau and thought, okay, let's, let's see if we can figure out who, who was responsible for her murder. And one of those researchers said, uh, have you considered Harvey Glattman? I had never heard of Harvey Glattman, so I started doing some research and um, through newspaper articles primarily that, again, we could get online. And it turned out that um, he had um, he had committed um, several crimes actually in New York State and was in Sing Sing prison for a while, 
But his parents lived in Denver, which is not that far from Boulder. And he spent several years in the 1950s that overlapped the death of this, the murder of this young woman um, in, in Denver. And then he went on to California afterwards and murdered three women, at least, maybe more. But he was arrested for the murder of at least three women in California, and he was executed at San Quentin in 1959. So no way to interview this man, but the fact that he uh, lived in, in the Boulder, Denver area for so many years that overlapped the death of this woman, it, it bared some investigation. And when I dug a little bit further, I found that his very first arrest was for not for murder, but for the abduction of a young woman in Boulder. And he just took her off into the hills and I guess fondled her or whatever. He didn't rape her and he didn't kill her, but uh, he did abduct her and he was arrested for that. So um, he was definitely familiar with the Boulder area and he was a convicted murderer. So um, I turned that information over to the sheriff's office and we both, it was sort of a joint investigation. I would I would find out information, turn it over to them. Now, what information they found out, they didn't always turn over to me because this was a very fine line I had to walk between um, law enforcement and non-law enforcement. So I had to tread carefully, but I, I turned over everything I could find to them. Now, there were two uh, two points brought up in your book um, that are um, uh, connected as M.O., so again, it all often hel helps that there's things that match. Bundy did things similar. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, killers usually do things similar, um, or rapists or robbers. Um, yeah. One of them were ligature marks that he tied people up, and you um, and they were able to even with bones, they were able to figure out. Am I right that that Jane Doe had ligature marks on I, her? There were photographs. Uh, there were photographs of the body. Uh, when when she was found and she had been out in the elements for about 10 days so sadly her her facial features had all her whole face had been chewed up by animals or birds or whatever so she was not recognizable but uh, the rest of her body uh, and this was in april there was still some snow on the ground whether it was under snow or whether there was clothing that later disintegrated or we don't know but her her wrists and her arms still had lots of flesh on them. And there were ligature marks on her wrists that were visible from those early day uh, photos. So that's, that's where the forensic people determined. I mean, it was from those photos where they determined that there was some ligature marks, but uh, what Harvey Glattman would do is he would pose as a photographer for a detective magazine and he would pay women something like $20 an hour, which was unheard of in the 50s, uh, just to pose for him in various poses like bound and gagged and odd things. But the women did it anyway, or some of them anyway, uh, for the money. And the ones in California, he would drive them long distances out in the desert 
with their arms tied up and have them do these various poses. And then he would photograph them. And apparently he photographed them alive and then he killed them. And then he photographed them afterwards too, which is really very gruesome to think of. But what we think is that this Jane Doe, um, our Jane, Boulder Jane Doe, was someone that he abducted in Denver. It's about a 30-minute drive to Boulder. Um, he he often said, well, I'll get you some modeling contracts. And he was looking for young, pretty women. And he would say, well, you know, you pose in this photo for me and I'll get you a job or whatever. So I think that he abducted her or picked her up hitchhiking, perhaps, and uh, brought her to Boulder. And um, when when she got to the place in Boulder Canyon, where she was eventually dumped in the creek, uh, things had changed quite a bit. He now, there is also, I think that's, again, conjecture, but it does do some tying to Harvey, that there is the thought she's sort of even bound. She escaped from the car and went running, and he hit her with well, his that, car. That and, is what we, we that is what we are thinking now. And um, because that came up in this postmortem autopsy where the forensic people found a um, a broken kneecap, and they said it was consistent with being hit by the bumper of the car. And uh, we even researched different types of cars and bumpers, and of course, they all had tons of chrome on them in that era. Um, but they were able to figure out what type of car he was driving at that time. And um, the Jane Doe was found completely naked. She had some bobby pins in her hair. No, no identification, no clothing, no nothing. So I think that he got her up to this point in Boulder Canyon, forced her to undress, and then probably rebound her wrists. And at that point, she jumped out of the car and started running. And it's a, it's a narrow mountain road with this drop-off. And I think he just hit her and kept driving. And, and she died probably of exposure. I, I mean, think this is a side a sidebar. Again, sometimes these things all meld together in my brain. But didn't uh, Detective Ainsworth like <clears throat> go to some car, uh, antique car? It was uh, me. <laughs> I went to. The, yeah, it was me. I went to the antique car place, and and I because I I was a little bit taller than we thought she was, but I could figure out her height, and I went around to all of these different cars. Uh, from that 1950s era and and put my kneecap against the bumpers to see, you know, if the bumper would have hit my knee. And yes, uh, every car I went to, it, it would have, yes. And also wasn't somewhere along the line when uh, Glattman was arrested uh, earlier on in his career that um, he gave up sort of an, with a snide comment, didn't he give up something that really did sort of indicate his MO of, uh, you know, striking women with his car? Uh, the interview that you're thinking of, he was interviewed in Los Angeles about the women that he murdered in California. And it was during that interview that the uh, person interviewing him in prison or in court, I'm not sure which, but it was it was definitely a California investigator. He said, well, what about those girls in Denver? Uh, are they still alive? And he said, unless they've been run over. And that's all he said. And then they changed the subject. And I felt like screaming and saying, why didn't you go back and ask some more questions? But 
that that then they went on and talked about other things but what a, a strange answer i mean the, it, there must be some reason that he said that so again uh, uh, though there's not a uh, a trial or there's not a conviction, I think you certainly and most of the authorities. And after reading the book, I would agree that he would be the number one suspect. And um, it's not the most important thing because he's now he's been executed for other crimes, so we don't have to quote unquote bring him to justice. Um, but let's talk about a, a, about this point where you think you probably have her um, the the Jan Doe's name. And you're coming to the end of the book. You know, you need to publish. So, so anyway, so you you publish the book. It's it's really sad, and you really don't have a um, a, a resolution about who she and is. And we reburied we reburied uh, the Jane Doe remains. They, I mean, her her bones had been literally sitting on a shelf in the sheriff's office, and we figured, okay, it's time to rebury her. We don't really know who she is, but we think she's this woman named Catherine. And um, we had a little ceremony that I'm saying we, the sheriff people and a couple other people who were involved, uh, had a little ceremony at the at the cemetery. We got a, a nice coffin and a concrete vault and everything. So, you know, there won't be any seepage of water and crushing of skulls and all that. And um, reburied her remains. And I said a few words about Catherine and how I thought it was probably her, but we couldn't find any family members. And so we didn't know there was no one to do any DNA with. The reason we couldn't find any family members is that she had given a false name, false birth date, and false place of birth on her wedding license that we were using to try to track down family members. We all were experienced genealogists, but there was no person with her name and birth date that existed. It was created by her for whatever. Maybe she wanted to appear older to get a job in a bar or something. We don't know. But anyway, we reburied her. And yes, I did have the first edition of the book published. And it was while it was at the printers. <laughs> um, bad timing on my part, but... Uh, it was while the book was at the, the first edition of the book that came out in 2009 and when it was at the the uh, publishers um i got an email from people i didn't know and it just said i hope you're sitting down catherine is in my house <laughs> and it was signed two women uh who were obviously caregivers for elderly people living in australia So I thought at first I thought this is some sort of joke and I forwarded it on to my contacts at the sheriff's office and I said, you know, check out the IP address and see what you can find about these people. Is this legitimate, not or whatever? And it turned out that they were legitimate and the sheriff people contacted them and I contacted them and they were in um, the process. They, they had been caring for a woman, elderly woman in their house for a number of years they were in the process of moving her to a retirement home, also in Australia. And they came across a little, they knew her as Barbara Thompson. That was the name they knew her as. But they came across a little old faded address book. And it said, Catherine Farron Dyer. And they thought, well, who's this? So 
they Googled Catherine Farron Dyer and they came up on my website <laughs> that said that we thought Catherine was this Boulder Jane Doe. And so um, it was a combination of old gumshoe research with just an old fashioned address book and the modern internet that connected these two mysteries. And um, the next thing I knew I was getting uh, calls from Australia from reporters and they were printing articles, murdered woman found alive in Australia. <laughs> That's not what you wanted. You don't want to say, I'm happy she's alive, but that's not what yeah. you want. No, but um, it was, it was, um, well, it was too late to do anything with the book. So we now have a second edition of the book with updated version. So if anybody's interested in buying the book, they should buy the paperback, which has the updated version, which is the current one for sale. But wait, there's more. <laughs> This somebody would say, "Oh God, you thought you had it, and then you don't." Okay, but yeah. you didn't need a third edition to actually identify Jane Doe. Part three. Part three is that the a family in Wisconsin, particularly a young woman who was a college student in Wisconsin, read some of these articles about this murdered woman being found alive in Australia. And she started researching the story and she contacted, she first she contacted the sheriff's office and they didn't respond. I think they just get too many emails and they just can't be bothered with it. But um, it's, it's unfortunate that they didn't respond. But it was months later where she actually contacted me and she said, I think that this Jane Doe might be my great aunt. And uh, we we uh, corresponded on online and it was late at night and I said, I've got to talk to you on the phone. And so we stayed up even later and we talked on the phone. And one of the things that we learned from the original autopsy report was that our Boulder Jane Doe had had her appendix out. And this young woman in Wisconsin was going on about her aunt and how old she was and how tall she was. And she said, Oh, and she has this big scar from her having her appendix out. And I just immediately I said, this has got to be her. Um, is there someone in your family who can give DNA like a, a sister? I mean, somebody real close. And she said, yes, there's a surviving sister. And I said, uh, well, you know, you call her, I'll call the sheriff people. And the next morning we we got the sheriff people talking with the surviving sister who gave her DNA. And it was a match. I mean, it, it took about a month of waiting, but I felt in my heart that we finally had found Jane Doe. And it was the it was the the great aunt of this woman in Wisconsin. Who's, whose name was uh, Michelle Casper. Yes, her name. And and her aunt was Dorothy Dot Gay, correct? Well, Dot was her nickname. Right. The, the name on the gravestone is Dorothy Gay Howard. Howard, right. Yes. Oh, I think my printing, yes. Yeah. It ends there as dot. Okay. Um yeah. and they, the family all calls her dot. Yeah. And, and then she, we exchanged photographs and I learned a whole lot more about her background. She had grown up and she was born in Texas and grew up in uh Phoenix and um actually she married twice even before the age of eighteen. 
she has kind of a interesting teenage years, but she she did run away from Phoenix um, and had a great, she had a great aunt who lived in Denver. Whether she was on her way to visit her great aunt, we don't know, but she never arrived there. But I think since the great aunt lived in the same neighborhood that Harvey Glattman was out looking for his victims, I think there's a possible connection there. And, and also what was what was very, again, um, a happy ending, if you will, that Michelle Casper and, and her great aunt, who is still a lot other members of the family, they because of the checkered uh, teenage years of of Dorothy, they were under the feeling that she had run away, that she wanted nothing to do with her family. She disappeared into the whatever. And they don't obviously they can't know because she's not there, but they have a better feeling that 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 was not the case that she was prevented from reconnecting or ever coming back because she was dead. Correct. I think the family probably felt some guilt that they didn't try harder to find her, but you're correct in saying that she just, the, the, there were, she was the oldest of three sisters and the surviving sister was obviously younger. And she said that her older sister, Dorothy was very much doing her own thing and, just didn't seem to want anything to do with the rest of the family. And they just sort of figured, okay, if that's what she wants, she's doing her own thing. And they never, they never even filed a missing persons report as far as I know. So, um, you know, you go back, it's sad, but um, at, at least now that family in initially you had mentioned the word closure, but I prefer the word resolution I've had many family members tell me that there is no closure when there's a murder in your family. You never get over it. It's there every day. It doesn't go away. So the the word that the families like to use is resolution because it does resolve the mystery. And she now has her own name on the grave. And that's very satisfying for me. And I'm sure it is uh, very helpful for the family. And you also, through doing this, I don't know if that was your... Um point in, in the beginning, but you have connected with and have an appreciation for uh, people looking for lost people. Oh, I've gotten very involved with missing persons and unidentified remains. I've, I've interviewed many, many families. I've gone on and written other books. And um, I actually wrote one act for law enforcement, and I wrote one for families and all about how to do this sort of research. And just two days ago, I was at Colorado's Missing Persons Day event where I give a slideshow about unidentified remains in Colorado, and we try to help people who are, who have missing loved ones. And um, yes, it, it I, I could I credit uh, this whole Jane Doe um, adventure, I guess you would call it. Uh, she changed my life. Jane Doe changed me because before that I was. I've always been a historical researcher. I've always written about local history, but I'm no longer interested in the railroad depot, for instance. I'm I'm interested in people. I'm interested in social history and particularly trying to connect the unidentified and the, the missing. And uh, it's just, it's my, my whole way of thinking has, has changed from this research. 
Well, Sylvia, I, I, this is an amazing, interesting case. It's an, an interesting treatment, the book uh, itself, uh, and again, the, the, that it has a resolution. I do always say this to my audience, that even though it's been a great 45 minutes, 50 minutes, it can't cover the, the whole case, nor does it give the great um, feeling that a book does. I'm a book person. So I do recommend uh, people get the book, Someone's Daughter, from, for a lot of reasons, and certainly, if uh, not the least of which, there's great pictures uh, so you can get the feeling of what the the sculpted bust uh, by Bender looks like and what the uh, the Catherine the picture on the uh, on the on the mount if you will and you can decide for yourself uh, do you think uh, that that could have been her which certainly we all felt it was it until otherwise we found out it wasn't so why don't you tell my audience um, you know uh, I forget how I found you do you are you on Facebook or do you have a website where people can not only you know, see about your other books and whatnot, and maybe, you know, where you might be speaking, but could get in touch with you uh, if they maybe have an interesting missing person issue that they'd love to share with you. My website is just my name, Sylvia Pettum, um, dot com, and it's spelled S-I-L-V-I-A. P-E-T-T-E-N. That will be on all the writing that I, I have, you know, various uh, descriptions of things and thumbnails that, that go with the podcast. So I'll make sure, although I think they might get a shot if they put the Y in there with Pedum and .com, hopefully Google will help them. But if you just put it in as a search, it will come up with all the different variations of Sylvia. But yes, it's S-I-L-V-I. Why did your mother do that to you? <laughs> I was actually named for a girlfriend of my father's. All and right. it's a European spelling. I don't know. I've never met the girlfriend of my father's, but yeah, it wasn't my mother's decision. <laughs> and on that interesting note, we will wrap up the podcast for today. So I'd like to thank you, my listeners, for tuning in again. And if you liked what you heard, I hope you'll share with your friends. And um, the podcast can be linked to on all the major platforms, but also uh, through uh, my website. And the website's address is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. And there you'll also find a link to my email. So you can drop me a line, tell me what you think. If you've got any interesting murder cases out there, let me know. So until we meet again, please take care. And for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.